I'm John Caldera, president of Independence Institute, where Ross Izzard is an educational scholar. He helps me celebrate 30 years of charter schools in Colorado, one of the first states to legalize them. And still, all these decades later, the lies go on and on about them. This is the audio version of our television show, Devil's Advocate. You can watch that program by going to youtube.com and searching for our channel, IITV. That stands for Independence Institute TV, or just go to thinkfreedom.org. You're gonna love this discussion. To prove that some bald men actually are smart, it's Ross Izzard, who is one of our education policy guys at Independence. He's also on the Colorado Charter League Institute, or Char- Colorado Char- Charter School Institute. It's close. close. It's close. Yeah. What does a charter institute do? All right. So the Charter School Institute is the only uh, state-level charter authorizer in the state. So if you're going to start a public charter school, you've got to be authorized. And to be authorized, you either have to go through your local school district, which often doesn't go great, or you need to be authorized by the Charter School Institute. So I sit on the CSI board, and we get to look at applications from a whole bunch of awesome schools and usually authorize them. Let's start at the beginning, just to bring people up to speed if they're not. People love and hate charter schools. And still, after 30 years, because I wanted to talk to you because it's 30 years of charter schools in Colorado. We're celebrating 30 years of charter schools. Independence had a lot to do with the launch of charter schools in Colorado. I'll take full credit for that, even though I had nothing to do with Independence Institute 30 years ago. And people still, 30 years later, think that charter schools are private schools. Can we just get this one out? Take it away. Sure. I, so they're not, right? That's the short right. they're version. They're public schools. They're public schools. They get public they're funding. government schools. Correct. They're as public as any other public school that you would ever go to, just as public as the ones that you might pick from your neighborhood school district. Um, they cannot deny somebody from correct. coming. They, they don't charge tuition. They can't deny admissions. They have to live by almost all of the same rules and standards as the public schools. The only difference is that what makes a charter school a charter school is the fact that they have a system of waivers from certain sections of state law, not all of state law, but certain sections that give them the freedom to hire their own people, choose their own educational model, set their own curriculum, and basically build out models that parents would want to choose that exist outside the traditional public school system. But they're still very much public schools, no tuition. They can't, they can't deny anyone from going to a charter school. Correct. I mean, I mean so you, they even have to take the Italians. Even the Italians. Even the Italians. Unless they're related to you. That's true. And then they can't. <laughs> they're so. it into law. So then why do people still think that they're private? And you keep hearing people say they're corporate charter schools. So I think you've, you've got two reasons for that. The first one's political, right? Everything's always political. So some of it is that the folks who oppose charter schools find it convenient to equate them to the other, right? Something outside of the public system. And if they can make them seem like unaccountable private schools or however they want to frame it, they win political points. And it makes it easier for them to vilify the charter sector and do things that are bad for charter schools. So that's thing one. Thing two is just, it's kind of complicated, right? So they are public schools. It's not complicated to understand what they are and are not at a foundational level. But it's complicated to understand as a basic citizen or a parent where they come from, how exactly they're authorized, what makes them different. 
And they do kind of have a feeling of being different and unique, right? Which is the whole point of a charter school. When you go, they probably have their own logo. They have their own mission and vision. They have their own curriculum. They have unique models. So they do feel independent in the same way that a private school might, and that can lead to some confusion. Uh, but they are very much public schools and always have been for the last 30 years. And I hear people say, well, darn charter school. I tried to get my kid into that school and they said no. So how can it be a public school if my kid can't go to it? And it's right near my house. It's the closest school to my house. So obviously it's not a public school. It can't be. It's right next to my house. My kid can't get in it. Yeah, I mean, so that's what, some of that is a factor of just demand, right? So many of the really high-performing charter schools are so popular that they have waiting lists that are into the thousands. And so you can show up even if you live 10 feet away and you have a new baby and you come in when he or she turns six years old or five years old and say, I'd like to enroll. And they say, well, we'll, we'll put you on the waiting list and you're number 1,114 and you just have to wait your turn um, because they're so popular, right? And there's just not a lot that they can do about it. The buildings are... A certain size, they have a certain number of teachers, they can only take a certain number of kids. So you don't have a right to go to the closest charter school. Correct. Yeah, they're all schools of choice, right? So you have a right to enroll in any public school that you would like. You certainly have a right to apply to a charter school. And but as you said earlier, school, they can't discriminate. Your other neighborhood school, if you show up on that day, you can just go in, right? That's true in your neighborhood school most of the time. It's not always true. You do have instances with neighborhood schools where they don't have the capacity and need to move you to another campus, or maybe you have a certain set of needs that they can't adequately meet there, and they're going to move you to a different program or a different campus. But it's just a little bit different because you have folks from charter schools who are not geographically defined, right? So like a local school district school in a neighborhood, you can open enroll into it, and some people do, but for the most part, it's pulling for, from the surrounding areas and from those neighborhoods, and that's its target zone. Charter schools pull from everywhere, right? So you have folks that might be coming from the next school district over. They might be coming from an hour away. They could be there for a homeschool enrichment program. They might be from a couple blocks away. You've got people coming from all over because the draw is not the neighborhood school. The draw is whatever the unique type of education is that the charter is offering. When you say they're popular, they're popular. So tell me if I've got this one wrong. I've heard that if you took all the charter schools, again, we're celebrating 30 years of charter schools in Colorado. Colorado was first or second, one of the first states to pass a charter school law to open these up. And it happened under a Democratic governor, Roy Romer, who signed the bill to make it happen. If you added all the kids up, it would be the largest school district in the state. I heard something like 13% of all Colorado kids in school are in charters. Mm-hmm. What is it, like 100? How many kids are in charters? Do you know? So it's 15% of total public school enrollment. 15? I thought it was 13. Charter schools. 15 now. 15%. Yeah, and I think the number is 135,000. I'd have to check it. That's what I... But it would be the largest school district in the state by a pretty wide margin if it were a school district, right? But it's not. It's spread out all across the state. Uh, Western Slope, Front Range, up north, down south. Charter schools at this point are everywhere. I mean, who, runs first, the, who runs a charter school? If, so, it's, if it's not the school board and the superintendent of, of the district, who's running this little school? Who's in charge? Yeah, so that's what makes them unique. So once they're authorized, right, and again, they've got to be authorized by either their local school district or by the charter school institute. But once they're authorized, they're run by their own governing boards. So they've got a group of folks, usually their parents, uh, but sometimes they're just Parents? Supporters. I know, it's wild. <laughs> parents that's run the schools. That's ridiculous. They're not qualified. Yeah. 
No, but usually it's parents. Sometimes it's grandparents or supporters or community members, uh, business leaders in some cases who come in and help run it. But they have their own board for that charter school that makes decisions about how the charter is going to go about the, the work of educating kids. Um, so they're still, you know, they are in contact with the local school board. They're in contact with the CSI board. I'm not saying that there's no contact and no communication back and forth, but ultimately in their school, it's their rules. They get to decide what it looks like within the bounds of public school law. Uh, and that's why they're all different. You'd be hard pressed to find any two charter schools that look exactly alike for a reason. I am so much older, wiser, and better looking than you. Mm. I remember when this law was passed, the fight over it, the teachers union, the Colorado Education Association, the local school unions, they fought this tooth and nail. The bravery that Roy Romer had at the time when he signed this law and the bipartisan support that the bill had because Democrats too wanted to have more choice inside the public school system. But the union said this was gonna be the end of public school education, that it's gonna be bad for the kids. Uh, obviously it wasn't, it's popular. Are these teachers who work in them, these schools, are they unionized? Are these union shops? Are they free agents? Yeah, almost, by, by and large. Yeah, almost never. I mean, I, a charter school never, theoretically could unionize, but, but they, usually not. they really never do, right? And there's a reason for that. So uh, charters operate and thrive on autonomy. That's the lifeblood of the school. The only reason- So they that, can try different right, they can curriculums. Innovate. They can try different ways. They can specialize in different- Right. Teaching techniques. And, and serve different communities, right? You've got charter schools for uh, teen moms. You've got charter schools specifically for inner city kids. You've got charter schools in rural areas. I mean, they're all different. What's the, give me the weirdest, since you're on the charter school institute and you authorize, help authorize these, what is the weirdest charter schools you've seen? I don't know if I would say weirdest, but there's some unique right, ones. So Put it in education speak. I'll give you one. Uh, there's New Legacy Charter School uh, in Aurora that is all about teen moms. And so it's actually... Uh, Obviously, young ladies who have had a baby, they're at the school learning, and then their children are there as well in the sort of a daycare, early childhood program so that the moms can go to high school, learn what they need to learn, and then during their breaks, go feed their babies or see their babies and be involved in the child care aspect of it. You don't find that really anywhere else, right? So that's one. Uh, another group of new charters that has just been authorized by CSI is called Wildflower, um, and they are a seer. They're Montessori schools. Montessori is very... Uh, touch-based, very much about group learning. Uh, and they are basically micro schools. So they come in, they start a school, they have three different sites spread out across a geographic area, all of which are very small and compact and led by a small team of teachers. And that's how they educate kids. They don't have big thousand kid buildings with gymnasiums and everything. Instead, they've got them in a very small room with uh, things that they can learn through touch and through feel and through experience. That's the model that they offer. And then you do have traditional schools like Liberty Common up in Fort Collins that is a big, incredible academic powerhouse, right, which is all about college prep. And, and we've had Bob training. Schaefer, former congressman, here on the show, and his, his Liberty Commons is one of the academic powerhouses in the nation. Uh, these kids are just academically challenged, and they do back-to-basics, um, hardcore reading and writing, and the kind of stuff that... Uh, our, our image thinks, you know, that's what schools used to be. And so there's just this wide spectrum of choice inside public education. Exactly. All right, so back to the unions. So unions still hate charter schools 30 years later. You know, they said, oh, it's going to destroy education. Uh, seems to be working pretty well. 
why do they hate charters so much? Yeah, again, we'll go back to politics, right? So where I was going with the other one is that in order to have unique models and serve different communities, you've got to have staff that is bought in on that, right? They can't just be any teacher. They've got to be teachers who specifically are there for that purpose, which means the charters have to have maximum autonomy with hiring, with firing, with personnel policies. And it's tough to do that if you're unionized, right? It's almost impossible to fire a union teacher. Correct. Even now, even in the days of, of post-teacher tenure, it's not an easy process, right? And that's before you deal with all the stuff that comes before. You know, unless, unless a teacher is basically murdering kids, it is impossible to fire a teacher. In almost all cases, I would say that that's true. Right. Yeah, very difficult. So, um, you know, but so the unions, uh, number one, they don't control charters. And they're keenly aware of the fact that this has become, as you said, if it were a school district, it would be the largest school district in the state. And it, pres- it provides exactly zero political control to the teachers unions. They don't have a presence in these schools. They don't uh, work toward the election of charter boards. They're not involved politically with these schools because they really can't be. And as a result, it sort of exists outside their locus of control. And I I think that drives them a little crazy, to be honest. Um, But the other thing is that unions just by reflex are, um, I hate to use this word willy-nilly, but conservative organizations and that they want to conserve the natural order of public school districts, because that's their lifeblood, right? That's where they get their membership. It's where they get their membership dues. It's where their power is. It's where their influence is. Anytime you have something that lives outside of that, particularly something that is uh, attractive to parents, that's successful, and that's done on a large scale, it chips away at that, right? It slowly chips away at their ability to derive dues from the teachers or exercise political influence over the educational process or have a hook in what parents can or can't choose. And eventually, potentially into some funding issues as well. Uh, and they can't do that, right? They're, they're inexorably tethered to school districts. That is their entire model. Charters don't live in that space and therefore are the bad guy. It's important to remember teachers unions represent teachers, not students, not parents. Students don't pay union dues. Teachers pay union dues. Parents don't pay dues, teachers do. And so the protection is for teachers. That's, that's their bread and butter. And so I want to talk a little bit about getting the authority to put in these schools. So you go, why don't your parents say, I want to have a school that focuses in on, let's say, trades. Yeah, we want to do this, but we also want to get our kids ready to maybe go into a trade instead of going into college prep. Or maybe uh, we've got some kids who don't do well behavior-wise, that they, behaviorally, they're not ready for um, the regular high school. So we want to do something special for them. And they all get together and parents say, yeah, we got this great idea. And they go to the school board and say, hey, we want to get this school off, off the ground. And usually it's the teachers union or surrogates for the teachers union that come up and go, no, we don't want to do this. Or since the teachers union are very involved in school board elections, their surrogates on the school board go, mm, no, nice try, uh, but we're not going to give you a charter. What is the usual reason a school board says, no, we're not going to do this? Because I would think if parents say, we want to try this school, give us the okay, shouldn't the default be, wow, yeah, go, try. But it doesn't seem, in Boulder, for instance, 
the Ascent Academies wanted to do uh, uh, one of their schools in Boulder. They have Classic View, is it uh, Golden View Classic Academy? Yeah, so there's Golden View and Jeffco, and there are a number of Ascent schools right. scattered around. Right, and so the Classic View Academy in, in Jefferson County is so successful, they've got a thousand kids on the waiting list. There are kids in Boulder who are driven down every day to go to that school. The, the wait list and the people in Boulder who wanted to start one in Boulder is huge. Boulder Valley School District, of course, <laughs> and I've got my fights with them, said, no, absolutely not. It's like, this is unthinkable given the demand for this, this type of education. And they said, no. Um, why? Because we say no. That's why. Why do they say no? What's the reason they say no? Yeah, so What's the I, official reason? What's the real reason? Yeah, so the official reason is usually complicated, right? They'll concoct some reason, and it may be uh, facilities issues. It may be that they don't believe that the enrollment is going to be there out of the gate for the school to be viable. Uh, it might be a concern with the model. You see that come up pretty often. It came up with Golden View, and it's come up with the Ascent schools as well. So it could be a philosophical thing. Uh, but ultimately, this is a political entity who exists to serve their school constituency. District is a school districts, a school board in specific. They were elected to oversee a school district. Their largest constituency is teachers and the people who work for the school district. That is really the people that they serve. Now, are there a whole lot of parents involved? Yes, but there's a lot of internal pressure. Those are not the ones knocking on their doors 24-7. Correct. That's just not their daily life, right? So what you're asking them to do is authorize their own competition, right? So they're in here trying to run the school district, and you come in and say Say that again, because that, you just hit it. Authorize their own competition. Why would a school district authorize what they see wrongly as a comp? Why would McDonald's authorize Burger King? In their minds, that's what they see, which is sadly not what they should be, the way they should see it. Correct. I mean, it is true that a charter school would compete with the district neighborhood schools around it. That's true. Uh, but to your point, we shouldn't care, right? The thing that we should care about is whether or not you have parents who are interested in it and whether or not it's meeting the needs of students. And if you check those two boxes, my general belief is as long as there is not some glaring issue with the viability of the school, and sometimes there is, right? I'm going to tell you, if sitting on an authorizing board, every now and then you run across an applicant where you kind of have to go, oh, you got to like work what? on this a little longer. Give me an example. So you could have a financial model that really won't work, right? Or you have a school that really needs 200 kids to be enrolled in year one to be able to survive, and it's only got 50 letters of people who are interested, right? So you do have situations that can come up, but they're fairly rare. And to be honest with you, by the time, if you ever look at a charter school application, they're hundreds of pages long. They're super duper detailed. You need attorneys. You need help from people to come in and help you fill this thing out. When you find a group of people who are willing to sit down and do that all the way through the application process and then put themselves out there in front of these political boards to be often grilled pretty aggressively, they've usually got their stuff together. There are a few rare exceptions, but most of the people who make it to that stage of really applying for authorization are in a pretty good spot and they usually have pretty significant parent demand behind them. But even then, in a sick way, that kind of makes it worse, right? Because the school district is even more afraid of a school that might have a thousand letters of intent. Help me with that because I'm really having a problem. What are they scared of? You say they're competition. I'm looking at this, and I know the school district's job is to educate our kids. And from my point of view, and maybe I'm very naive on this, if this charter school helps educate the district's kids, isn't that taking a load off the district's plate? 
and say, hey, we're going to take 200 kids off of your plate and we're going we're gonna to take them and 200 parents are going to be more satisfied so they're not going to be barking at you the way Caldera is barking at you and we'll take care of that. So those 200 headaches are no longer your headaches. They're our headaches and we got it. Wouldn't a school district go, oh, great, now we can go focus on these other kids and their life is easier. You keep saying it's competition. I'm having a hard time seeing it, in my mind, as competition. Mm -hmm. I see it as, great, you're taking these kids that need something else and you're giving it to them, freeing me up to focus on on these others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of truth to that, right? Especially uh, given the charters have to take care of their own buildings, right? So nobody pays for their buildings. If really? they're gonna have a school, build it, buy it, whatever they're gonna do, they gotta pay for that. And so if you're a school district who is running out of space in your schools and someone says, I'm gonna open a new school for 500 kids and I'm gonna build the building and everything's gonna be there, that actually starts to solve big capacity issues for a lot of schools. How do districts. they get the money for that? Sometimes through bonds, right? And this is where, again, the strength of right. your application comes in. You've gotta be able to show that you've got a viable business for all intents and purposes to go out and get the money that you need. And sometimes through a whole bunch of patchwork funding mechanisms that are, I mean, crazy. People mortgaging their own houses or people putting up money from a private business or foundation grants or something else. Or asking charities. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I know Golden Classic uh, has has asked parents, will you help out? And a lot of times parents go, yeah, here's yep. a thousand here and a thousand there and a thousand there, and, and they're able to help build a building. Yep, that's right. So, but here's the kicker though. So whenever a kid goes to a charter school, so let's say you're in Boulder Valley and he uh, packs up and says, I'm gonna go to charter school A over here. Um, it might help with the facility side. Definitely the parents are gonna be happier. That's why they're choosing the school. Um, but to some extent, the funding follows the student, right? So there'll be a little bit of charge back at the district level for administrative overhead to help out the charters. But most of the money is going to follow the kid directly to the charter school in the form of per-pupil funding, um, which is great and exactly how it should work. If a kid picks a new public school, the funding should go over there because that's where he goes to school. Um, but eventually, there are some hold harmless provisions in statute that are complicated. The short version is it takes a number of years for school districts to actually lose funding from a kid who is enrolled outside of their logbook. Uh, but eventually, they technically do lose the money for that kid, which they should because he doesn't go to school there anymore. He goes to school over here. And I think sometimes these conversations get clouded by the fact that rather than thinking about the interests of the student and what the parents want, it is, well, how much money can I get into my coffers so that I can go out and do the things that I want to do? Now, the reality of that is that the number of charter kids in most school districts is not going to bankrupt them. These are really large districts sometimes that have budgets close to a billion dollars. They have kids move in and out all the time. They open and roll to other school districts. They go to different schools. They move out of state. They go to homeschool. They're going to be fine, but it's an easy excuse for them to say that you're taking funding away from our neighborhood schools to. But they're also taking charter. away the liability. So, let me see if I understand. Let's say it costs what I'm going to say ten thousand just for for ease. What is it? Probably nine thousand. Somewhere in that neighborhood. Right. Yeah. So, um, and that's just the operating cost. You know the 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 capital cost when you put it together is is double that at least. That's why these ridiculous bonds you you're still keeping the capital cost, you the district. So you still get all the pretty buildings and the toys and all the rest. So here let's let's say the ten grand. Um, you're going to keep the district is still going to keep five hundred bucks, you know, whatever it is for administrative overhead. 
okay. So 9,500 bucks is going to go to the new Montessori school, not, and they don't get the capital money, which, which is unfair there. They should get a portion of the capital money, but that means you, the school district, you get to keep the capital money, you keep the 500 bucks, and you lose the cost of educating the kid, and it's in the kid's best interest. This is still a win-win, and oh, by the way, I've read the websites, we care about what's best for the kid. So they're lying when they say it's about what's best for the kid. That's just a bald-faced lie if they hold back these, these charters. Now, they have to have an answer for that. What is, what is the big liability for them holding back a charter? Some of it is the money side of it. Some of it is but, the political side, right? But they so lose liability and they get true. more money. because. But if you're an elected school board member, right, yeah. and you're sitting on a school board where the people who are elected just political, you, political expediency, totally. the union's going to beat me up. Exactly. Or somebody within the district is going to beat you up or you're going to lose your next campaign or whatever it might be. But these are, they're politicians. They might be local level politicians that you see at King Supers, but they're politicians. So it all just falls into the elections have consequences. Sure. And unions go out and, and elect union members and therefore kids can't get better educations. I think, unfortunately, or, yeah. the bottom line is that a lot of kids have the opportunity for the education they need tethered to political realities. In this case, who elected me, who are my friends, who's going to be in my face tomorrow when I take this vote. And that's a lot of pressure, right? I mean, all politicians deal with pressure, but when you're in a local area where you have folks who are going to be coming over to your house, or you see them at King Supers or It's at the funny, gym, you stuff. and I have been doing this long enough that school board members get more pressure than state representatives, mm -hmm. than congressmen, than county commissioners. I've seen more personal attacks on school board members who try to do more for charter schools and more for kids than probably any class of local politician. Yeah, and I think that makes sense, right? Because they're the front line of school choice. I mean, we've got the legislature and they might eventually maybe do something, right. probably not. Um, but probably local, not. local school boards are the guys who hold the keys. They get to decide which charter schools open and which ones stay open when we're so new. Tell me about, up. so BVSD, of course, is gonna say no because they're, they're beholden. There's got to be a, an outlet, and that's where you come in with a charter school institute. Yeah. So what happens next? Well, so normally you'll have a school that comes in and they're denied by their local school district for any of the reasons right. that we talked about, right? And they've got a couple options at that point. They can go and appeal it to the State Board of Education, um, which used to be a good proposition, but these days um, it also looks a little different. By, it, it's by the left. Yeah, the numbers are tough, right? So they can go and uh, appeal it. Maybe they win, maybe they don't. Uh, but again, it's an arduous process. It takes time and you might not win. Or they can go and apply to be authorized by the charter school institute instead of by the local school district. The trick with that is, is that almost every school district in the state, I think there are six that don't have exclusive chartering authority, which means that they are the only entity anywhere in their district that gets to decide who is approved as a charter school and who is not, for whatever reasons they deem appropriate. So that means that if you want to be chartered by CSI. Let's say you lose your uh, board application. They say, no, get out of here. Maybe you appeal to the state board and lose. Maybe you decide not to. And you go back and say, I want to be chartered by the Charter School Institute. The school district has to give you permission to be chartered by the Charter School Institute. So they what? have to release you to go and apply to CSI and be chartered in the district. And again, they can say no. 
at which point you're just out of luck. Since when? Has it always been this way? As long as I've been doing it, yeah. So the Charter School Institute came into being 11 years after the Charter Schools Act, so it's been around for more than two decades, well, almost two decades. Uh, and it's always been the case that exclusive chartering authority has... So let me kick this back to you, see if I'm following you. A school board, I'm picking on Boulder because obviously they're very anti-charter and wouldn't put uh, an ascent school up there, but they say no, and parents go, all right, we want to appeal. They can go to the Department of Education. To the state board, yeah. Which is very unfriendly to charters now. Or we can go, mother, may we please go to someplace that might be more friendly? At which point they can go, so why would we send you to someplace that would override us? No. Right. And then you're stuck. And you're stuck. And that's the end of it. That's, unfortunately, that is, though, there's no other route. Even though charter schools are so popular. Mm-hmm. Other than the raw numbers. And I would even go back and not yeah. just even though, but especially because charter schools are so popular. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Yeah. You can't do it because people, because you want it. Because exactly. You, because more people might want it. Is there any polling data supporting it other than the numbers? I mean, you, yeah, so you can, um, there are a whole bunch of different ways that you could skin that cat. There is polling data on it. The last poll that I saw had support for charter schools somewhere around 65%. Um, now, as all with all things, you can run two polls and ask the question two different ways and right. get two different results. But it's usually a pretty strong majority. Um, Interestingly, the majorities tend to be stronger among minority populations more often than not. Uh, because, Why is that? Well, because very often I think they are the ones who find themselves stuck in urban education systems that are not meeting their needs and that have not been meeting their needs for a very long time. And charter schools are something different and another option that might be able to give their kids a, a better outlook. Um, suburban communities have different concerns, right? Rural communities have different concerns. Uh, but charters have done a particularly incredible job in urban communities of coming in and revitalizing education systems that have spent decades just completely failing to get where we promised kids that they should get. We look at charters and we think of them as great academic successes. Are there ways that people go, no, I'm not as concerned about the academics. You know, we think, I want to place where my kid is learning. Is that the only reason a, a parent might choose it? Otherwise, we'd all send our kids up to, to Bob Schaefer's Liberty Commons, and they'd, they'd all come out geniuses. But there are other, what are some of the other reasons you might choose a, a school? Yeah, so I, any parent knows that that's not the only thing, right? You want your kid to be able to read and do math, of course, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that goes into it. Some of it's location, so where is the school? A lot of it these days is safety. How safe do I feel with my child at school? Are they dealing with bullying? Do I feel like the security is adequate? Uh, some of it is value systems. So a lot of charter schools have uh, virtues and value systems that they teach in the classroom. They're not religious. These aren't religious well, yeah, things. Yeah, I was asking you, is this, I want to send myself, my kid to a Catholic charter school. They don't Can exist. I? Nope. What do you mean they don't exist? So they are all, by law, they cannot be religious. Um, there are some efforts in other states to sort of wiggle their way down here, but in Colorado, charter schools can't be religious. They can have value systems. They can teach you what's well, right and wrong, but they can't be delving into the specifics oh, of Christianity or anything else. When you say right and wrong, that starts to get very fuzzy, too. You know, so is, I want to send my kid to the Nazi value system school. Is there one? Can there be one? It's not religious. Sure. 
I want to send my I want to send mine to the fascist school. I mean, sure seems like there's enough socialist schools out there. They can't say it that way, but there's a lot of social justice schools out there. Why can't there be something uh, that's that goes the other way? Is there is is there a KKK model school out there, or could there be? You know, what, when when you start saying we're starting to teach values at charter schools, what what does that mean? So I'll say two things. The first one is. No, none of those schools exist. Uh, and no, they probably never will for two reasons. The first being that there aren't a lot of parents who would pick that. And the second being that this is where authorizers serve a good role, right? So we talk about authorizers as being bad guys, but this is one of their jobs is to sit down and screen an application and say, this looks good, it makes sense. Even if you don't necessarily agree with everything they teach, but you're probably not going to find an authorizer that's going to say yes to a Nazi charter school, right? And as far as I know, nobody's ever applied the chances of you ever winning authorization with that, even if you could get around all the hate speech laws and everything that governs it, pretty, pretty Are there well. any environmental? Sure, there are quite a few that actually have a big environmental focus. I don't know if they brand themselves that way, but that's part of their curriculum, and they, they hit it pretty hard. So when I try but, to put together my petroleum and coal charter school? Potentially. You might be able to do that. I mean, so this is where choice happens, right? So my opinion on school choice in all forms is that you have to let a thousand flowers bloom which is to say that parents are best served by having the maximum number of options on the table so that they can look across it and say, I think what these guys teach aligns with my values and I like it and I'm gonna send my kid there. And look at the rest of the options and say, I don't agree with that, it doesn't match with my philosophy, they don't do the things that I'd like them to do and I'm not gonna send my kid there. And that's the essence of school choice, right? You don't want every school teaching the same thing because if that were happening, you don't have choice. And that's the whole point of the charter sector. I'm trying, I'm trying to imagine the Ayn Rand preschool. Well, I, you know, <laughs> but you say that there are charter schools out there that teach things that are uh, what we would consider to be, you know, sort of free market ideals. And now they, they teach it fairly, but they're teach, out there. Teach the to- toddlers, you will not share. <laughs> Do not share that toy. I don't know if it's quite like Timmy, that. But. Timmy was caught sharing toys, Mr. Smith. But there, I mean, but that's true, right? There yeah. are charters out there that you can find that will probably be closer to that than others. And there are some that are going to teach stuff that, frankly, is going to be on the other end of the spectrum. And that's okay. It's supposed to be like that. You're supposed to have options that look different from one another. We've been talking about all the successors. There's got to be some failures. What? What? Tell, tell me a failure or two. There, not all charters have lasted and bloomed and say, let a thousand failure, let a thousand flowers bloom. Some of them have been overtaken by weeds. Give me, give me an example. I, to be honest with you, I struggle to come up with a really specific example that wasn't tied into the authorization process. There have been a few that haven't made it and had to close. Closed by lack of students? Yeah, some just financial reasons, right? So they can't keep their enrollment up. They can't pay the bills. They get over their heads on a facility. I'm not going to say that that never happens. I don't know if I have a specific example off the top of my head. It's relatively rare. Any for academic reasons? I can't think of a charter that's ever been closed for academic reasons. But I will say that there have been charters that have been handed off to other folks to manage for academic reasons. And there have been conversations about closing charters for that stuff. Interestingly, almost never really happens with district schools. You occasionally have a district school, a neighborhood school that is performing so poorly that they talk about turning it into a charter as a remedy for the really? poor performance. Um, but you really, it's exceedingly rare to see a school district school shut down for performance, which is how we wind up in situations where you've got a 30-year record of having 90% of your kids unable to read. 
legislature finished up a few weeks back, a month back or so. Every year, it seems like there's always pot shots to harm charters. And it's getting more and more unfriendly. What have they, what have they tried to do in the last few years? There have been a couple. So uh, the two big Achilles heels for charters are their personnel policies, because if they can't hire the people that they want and structure their staffs the way that they want, they can't do what they need to do, right? As soon as they lose that ability, they lose the ability to have a cohesive educational model. So there's been a lot of legislation over the last couple of years that sort of death by a thousand cuts starts to whittle away like at their ability to... Uh, so you've had a few that govern what can be asked on job applications. There have been a number of bills proposed that either directly or indirectly dealt with the issue of teacher licensure. So whether or not charter school teachers have to be licensed to teach in a charter. So in other words, to take away who you can hire. So if you've, if, if Bill Gates says, hey, yeah, I would love to teach computer science in this charter school. You go, oh, Bill, that's wonderful. But you don't have a teaching degree, so we can't hire you. Mm -hmm. And that's been a serious topic of conversation. Both at the state level and local authorizers love to talk about whether or not the teachers are licensed. Uh, some of the best charters in the state, Liberty Common included, very few licensed teachers in there. They're all professionals who did this for a lot of time and then came back to so get back. You have business people who have retired and go, I'd be happy to teach a business class. And mm -hmm. um, Well, you don't know how to teach. Well, that's up to the parents and the students to decide how, how that works out. No, you can't teach unless you do it the way the state tells you how to do it. Yeah, and that's a, licensure is a whole different thing, but that is a constant topic of conversation is whether or not charters can waive out of the requirement for having licensed teachers. So we got, we, got this, we got this guy, uh, Michael Jordan, who wants to be our basketball coach, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't- Didn't take the right class. He didn't take the right class. Yeah. So, uh, no, sorry. The other one that they go after is the charter appeals process. So like I mentioned, these are they're very limited, right? If you get a no on your charter application, you get to go and ask for permission to go to CSI, or you get to appeal to the state board, or both. Or maybe in some very rare instances, you could get legal action. But pretty much it's state board or CSI. That's it. If that doesn't work out for you, if the appeals process in the state board is not fair, you're in trouble because you have nowhere else to go. And so there have been a couple bills. There have not been any... This year, kind of last year, and then the year before that, there was a bill that would have gutted that entire appeals process and was designed to change the standard that the state board uses when it weighs these decisions about charter appeals from what's best for students, which is what the law says now, they have to weigh the best interests of the pupils, to really what's best for the district. We're going to provide deference to the district's determination and just assume that they were right in the appeal. That's the default mode and now you've got to provide evidence that they were wrong. So you put charters on the back foot immediately with the appeals process. And once you break the appeals process, you're in trouble. They don't have anywhere else to go. Um, so those have been kind of the main angles of attack. You do see some other stuff that wiggles around the edges of unionization. Senate Bill 111 this past session uh, dealt closely with the idea of collective bargaining and very specifically called out the fact that charter schools were not allowed to waive out of this um, so there are, there are efforts around the margins to sort of push them into that sphere, but almost all of it has to do with personnel. That is really, that's the linchpin and what makes a charter a charter. And I think the other side gets that. Which is, we, we, we can't let them hire who they want to hire. Or to your point, fire who they need to fire, right? right. Uh, those are two sides of the same coin. Isn't it amazing that in the private sector, there's always a way to evaluate people. 
but somehow in education, no, 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 we need to treat everyone like a factory worker, which I would think is so insulting. Isn't it amazing that, that we treat teachers like automatons? We have something called a salary schedule. Mm-hmm. We, we pay teachers not by how well they work, but by how long they've been in the system and how many different degrees or certificates they get. So the longer you've been in and the more classes you've taken, this is why there's so many doctors in, in education. Go, go to a teacher's conference and go, is there a doctor in the room? And you know, 100 hands rise. No, somebody could actually remove an appendix and then they all go, go down because the more degrees or certificates you get, the higher you get bumped up on a salary schedule. None of which has to do with, are you teaching kids well? But any other industry, whether you're a coder or a mechanic or, or bussing tables or anything, you get paid more by your merit. And on these charter schools, why they're more responsive is your boss gets to sit down with you and go, hey, you're doing well here, not so well there. And you might get paid more on your merit. You get to teach. You get to teach, not just fill out forms. And I've heard from so many teachers, and tell me if I'm wrong, that so many have left the normal government education system where they're just punching a clock because they wanted to be teachers again. And in charter schools, they found, I can be a teacher again. I can be a real educator, not just an automaton. And I find that so satisfying to teach, to be part of the system, to, to do lesson plans and work in a different way and find a school the same way that parents and kids find a school that fits them, teachers were able to find a school that fits them to teach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's huge. And I mean, the, the deal with charters is because they're not unionized, because they're not governed by these overarching salary schedules, uh, which I agree are super stifling. They came about back in the day when they were trying to make sure that female teachers and male teachers were paid equally but we've already, the law has dealt with that, right? And so now we've got these relics from like the 1950s that don't make sense in the modern world, but school districts hang on to them because they're part of their collective bargaining agreements most of the time. Charters don't have those. And so every teacher who comes in the door to charter gets the chance to negotiate his or her own contract, right? They're going to sit down the same way that you would sit down to interview for a job. Sometimes it's multiple interviews and the school is deciding whether or not they're a good fit. The teacher's deciding whether or not she's a good fit. And then they get to decide what fair pay looks like. And they get to see what the evaluation system at the school looks like, how they're going to be evaluated, how raises work. Some probably have salary schedules. Most don't, right? It's just an individual employment uh, arrangement. And it, it looks a lot more like a modern system that, in most cases, really prioritizes performance and what you're doing for the kids in the classroom, as opposed to, like you said, uh, how long have you existed in this space and how many hours have you taken this particular course at this particular school. It's really difficult to call teachers professionals because professionals are paid by their work. Professionals are not paid like factory workers. Salary schedules, by definition, are paid like factory workers. That's what a salary schedule is. It's a union-based factory work schedule. and. Charter school is a much more like a professional. All right, let's wrap it up with this. We talked about some of the, the dangers, what's going on in the legislature. If 
there was a much more friendly legislature to charter schools that people want, what would they pass? What, what reform is needed? So I think the number one thing on the policy side for charter schools is rethinking exclusive chartering authority. So uh, you could get rid of it entirely and decide what that looks like. You could allow new authorizers into the space. Maybe it's universities, maybe it's private businesses. There are a whole bunch of different ways you could do that. How would that work? How, a university or a business could sure. authorize a school? Yeah, and there are actually a number of states that allow that. So you'll have a university with, that'll With come government in. money. A business could right. say, oh, that tax money is gonna go to do this school? To help those kids get prepared to go and join the workforce. I mean, businesses obviously have a vested interest in making sure the kids coming out of K-12 are ready to go and work for them. And so, therefore, it, it makes sense. Same with colleges. They want to make sure I, the kids who come to them are... Minute, you, you have the Colorado Rockies deciding which which charter school could be funded? Maybe. It depends on how you structure it, right? This is one of those conversations that you'd have to have, and it would be a long debate. But there are a lot of other organizations out there with an interest in education who could serve as charter authorizers outside of districts and CSI. And we should talk about it, right? And decide which ones make sense. And you think about a state where there are no trades, that you cannot find workers... Wouldn't it be interesting if a trade association said, you know what, a certain amount of money should go through us to authorize charter schools, or a technological sector would say, would say that. You said universities. Help me understand that one. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously universities have an interest in having the kids who come to them being ready to go, right? They don't yeah. have to deal with remedial education and everything else, and it's bad for the kids because then you're paying extra money to catch up to where you were supposed to be when you finished high school, and that sucks. So <laughs> yeah, anyway. many kids go to college and they have to take math classes. Right. I mean, but not just math classes, but they've got to spend their first year paying tuition to take all the remedial courses they need to get into like the 101 math classes. And it's a, right. it's actually, it's really bad, but different topic of conversation. Um, but universities, especially those with a focus, they have an interest in having these kids come to them, both as a recruiting tool for them and also to making sure that they're prepared. So the idea of having like a CU or a CSU authorize a charter school that is specifically designed around getting kids ready for, let's say, agriculture or energy sector work or something else, it makes a lot of sense. And you get a smooth pipeline from early childhood into grade school, then into really all the way into college and eventually into the workforce. And you get this kind of smooth glide path for those kiddos that right now they don't have. They kind of have to take it and it's a bunch of Lego bricks and you got to stick them together the right way to build what you want. And that's okay. But it could be better, and I think the universities would be a, a interesting way to look at charter authorization. What would you do to help kids in the inner city, the ones who hurt the most, that have the least amount of money, the least amount of choice? What reform do they need the most? I would say it's more choice, right? And I know that that's an easy answer, but it's more choice and it's more charters, right? You should never have a kid who is stuck in a bad situation who cannot get into a charter school because they all have long wait lists and the district won't authorize anymore. And then all you can tell that kid is, well, look, uh, mom or dad is gonna have to either take their chances with open enrollment and maybe get in a neighboring district and then drive you 45 minutes or an hour each way, or you're just stuck. You're just gonna stay there and we're gonna see what happens, which is kind of where like Adams 14 has been recently. The more that we can get away from that and remove the political barriers to creating options for those kids, the more likely it is that you're going to see people coming in and making really high quality schools. And that's the only answer. You gotta put good schools in those neighborhoods. And if you're not willing to do that, it, it's gonna stay the same for a long time. And that is wrong on a lot of levels. You know, politically it's tough because parents are willing to fight for their kids so hard, but they only have so much energy because they've gotta make a living for their kids. 
And once the kid is out of school, they're out of gas. And they're not going to, you know, and the fight's over. But the union is omnipresent and self-funding and always there. And so uh, I've noticed the same problem with, with property owners when they have a property fight with the local government. Once their property fight is done, they don't continue to fight for reforms because their fight is over. And so there's not a natural, you know, in public choice theory, there, there's not a reason for them to keep fighting. Their battle is over. And so on an individual level, once their battle's over, you know, they retire. They retire that fight. The union is always fighting and always pushing and always pushing and always pushing. So it's really important that there's always people like you and groups like Independence Institute that are trying to match that to try to help kids in the future uh, because the, the warriors don't stay fighting for educational choice the way the union is always there to fight to take it away. And so it's an outgun fight. You wrote something up about all this, the 30th anniversary. Where do people go to get it? So it wasn't quite it? about, it was about charter school authorization right. and the processes and the issues and some of the recommendations yeah. on how we can make it better. Uh, you can find that on Independence Institute's website. Thinkfreedom.org. Um, exactly, underneath the Education Policy Center's page. It should be the first thing on there, I believe. Look, look for your gorgeous mug. Oh, no, they don't do that. They don't let me be on the cover oh, that's of That's a good thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. Um, but the title of it is? I actually can't remember the exact title, but it's about charter school authorization. This is what happens when you do too much of it. Yeah, that's good. Ross, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of Devil's Advocate, I hope you'll share it with a friend. And I hope you'll subscribe and follow the show. We have new ones released weekly. Remember, this audio was taken from our TV show. To watch it, just search the letters IITV for Independence Institute TV on YouTube for this and many other great conversations.